Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, thanks for joining us for another of our virtual events. And we are delighted to have Janet Devonovich back with us, looking very chic tonight. Um, and uh, to discuss her brand new book, Dirty 30, which big news, we just found out had reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list, which is congratulations, Janet. Thank you. That is awesome. And as always, Janet has kindly signed a whole bunch of copies for us, which we've received here. I will go ahead and put a link uh, in the comments field should you wish to purchase the signed book. Um, and also, if you have questions for Janet, go ahead and put them in and Barbara will summon me back on screen towards the end of the hour and I would be happy to ask any questions you might have. So uh, Lester Holt signing off to uh, Barbara. <laughs> thank you very much, Patrick. Actually, I want to say a big thank you to Janet. She has faithfully signed every single Stephanie Blum book for us and signed them herself. Um, she's been so generous over the years about accepting shipments. And, you know, she's been to see us a few times, but, you know, 30, 30 books. I mean, it published on one for the money was June 1st, 1994, I think. Does that sound right to you? Sounds about right. Yeah. And I, you weren't there, but I was the person who gave you the Dulles Award at Left Coast Prime in 1995 for the book that uh, mystery booksellers had agreed was the most fun for them to sell during the previous year. I, I've always loved the spirit of that award, and I'm kind of sorry it went away. Yeah, and I'm sorry that I missed it. <laughs> well, you, you know, there you were. But anyway, um, we've, we've had some memorable moments with Janet. One of the scariest, she came to see us with number seven, and we were in an auditorium at the Scottsdale Library, which is designed to hold 288 people, and something like 700 people came, and that part wasn't so bad, but lots of them were moms with babies and strollers, and <laughs> Janet kept waving the bid, and I was looking over there at the librarian turning steadily paler as <laughs> she thought, if the fire chief comes, we are so, but anyway, it was really fun. Yeah, and they, they came stampeding out of the auditorium. Um, I remember I was at the signing desk in front of a whole bank of windows, and they opened the doors, and all of these ladies came <laughs> rushing out. Um, and I think it was my daughter, Alex, who got up on a desk and started screaming yes. back. <laughs> yes, it there was, was a certain lack of control. Exciting. Yes, <laughs> I have to. I have to agree with that. And Janet, Janet, at one point, very kindly came and we did a walkthrough signing at the store. And I was so odd that she was able to sit there for like four and a half or five hours without ever leaving her chair. I don't know how you did that, but then I'm a coffee drinker, so that probably explains why I would have been getting up. Yeah, no, I dehydrate myself totally. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I fly like that too. You know, they say always. You know, you should be hydrated. No, no, I don't think so. Ah, uh, well. Yeah. Anyway, I love Janet's new hairdo, which got me hair color, and she may inspire me to go natural because actually, both of us are now octogenarians. Can you believe that? How did that happen to us? Um, no, I I refuse to submit to that. I'm not. I'm not going there. Stephanie and I just never get older. And um, that's somebody else's problem. So <laughs> you don't get older either. Look at you. You look great. I, you know, I, it's just a number. Doesn't it is just a number. No, yeah. no, no. I, I actually recently had a physical at the Mayo Clinic because, you know, we live here in Mayo land and all. And they, they gave me what I consider to be perfectly preposterous life expectancy. And as I was reeling from that, I went on to have my eyes examined, my eye doctor. And do you know, that was the only thing I could think about was, would my eyes actually make it if I lived that long? And my eye, because, you know, if I can't read, I mean, why be here, right? And and the eye doctor said, it's okay. He said, they'll outlive you, whatever, whatever it is. So then I was, then I was soothed. Yeah, I just, I just got a clean bill of health too. I was, my cardiologist was sort of shocked, you know, like you don't even have any calcification. What's wrong with you? No, you should have something, but no, I, we're just, you know, clean livers. I think we, you know, it's clean living. Now reading is a tonic, you know, there's no question. I think that agile minds, which are, you know, made even more agile by actually reading books are a key to successful aging. Also living in a relatively benign climate. Cause when I first knew Janet, she lived in new England, but now she hangs out in a warmer place. And I've lived in Arizona since 1986 instead of Chicago, where I was born. So 
doing yeah. something. Of course, my my um, my joints are crumbling, but uh, you know, aside from that, <laughs> next year I'll be the bionic woman. You know, I'll have a new knee and a new hip, and um, I'll be perfect again. I love it. That'll be great. So one of the things that before we talk about Dirty 30, I want to talk about the actual physical book because it is really, you can see that the cover is very colorful, but what's very cool is you take off the cover, the book jacket, then you can see that in fact, they have embossed. I'm trying to hold my place here. Why, why does this happen? Hold on a minute. Um, they've embossed it with gold so that there's this beautiful gold on the cover and on the spine. Then if you open up the book, there are cool drawings in the chapter headings. So the reason I was flubbing around there on chapter 10, I love this one, it's donuts. Donuts yeah. figured very largely in the Stephanie Plum yeah, series. Donuts. And the donuts disappear as you go through the book. Yes, I know. I love that. Now, the other thing is that over time, Janet has occasionally sent us for a not Stephanie Plum book. She hasn't signed every one of those and she has sent us book plates. So we knew what Janet's books plates, try it again, book plates looked like. But I think this is so nifty on the end papers of the book. Yeah. It's a great design. And they start with one for the money up here to go all the way down here to going rogue. 30 and years of book plates. I know it's a really great cover idea. And you know, there you are with your signature. And then you did yourself a special project. You want to tell us about it? That comes at the very end of the under bonus material. I don't remember what it was. What is okay? I got my book here. 30, okay. No, it's okay. It's 30 quotes from 30 books. Oh, yes. Yes. And I thought that was a lot of fun. You know, I, I think that we we wanted. We wanted to make the book special and we want to continue with that. So we're really, you know, have to up the ante now for 31. I mean, not only did I have this outrageous ending to this book, which I sort of like, now I don't know how to dig myself out of that hole. You know, I was going to ask you about that, but we can't actually <laughs> discuss it because it's a spoiler. Yeah, yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't want to spoil it, but I have to say, I am a little nervous because um, no matter what happens at the ending? It's um, I'm afraid like there are going to be people who come and get me and find me and <laughs> break your break your good knee. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> yeah, break my new knee. Yeah. So um, yeah. Well, it, you know, it's it, the the secrets. You know, going to be out because the book has been out a week. So I'm sure it's getting around although I haven't had any really bad email so far so oh good well you know there's been a certain tiktok anyway um you know back in book eight Stephanie and Ranger had a you know yeah, yeah. an actual flesh to flesh moment um and yeah. it's, you know it's been a long time since book eight I I in fact somebody just sent me notice that book eight was banned by the Collier County School Board and I was like so relieved because I yeah. haven't had any of my books banned. And I was like, what's wrong with these people? Aren't they reading my books? Why aren't they banned? I, you know, I use all these bad words and I have sex and I'm politically incorrect. And um, I thought nobody's noticing. But thank you, Collier County. They figured it out. I love it. Our moms from Liberty located in Collier County. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, that's that's the premier book banning group. Oh, they actually yeah. called the police and tried to have a librarian arrested, a school librarian arrested the other day. It was in, um, I don't remember, one of the book things like Shelf Awareness or Publishers Weekly or maybe even the New York Times or something. But, you know, I mean, I it, well, let's not go into politics, but it's just crazy to, you know, for people to try to police other people's um access to materials and morals and so forth never works out well but you know i don't actually mind this because it's a school library and my and i write an adult book now i know young people read it as well but you can find the book in a bookstore you can find the book there are a lot of sources where if you want to read my books you can find them i don't feel like they really need to be in school libraries you know that that kind of book banning doesn't bother me that kind of book banning means that somebody decided it wasn't age appropriate. And I think, you know, I don't see, I don't have personally have a problem with that, with, with being age appropriate, but um, as long as, you know, it's not banned nationally, that, that would be terrible. Not, you know, I don't, I don't see that happening. So. 
Well, there's always digital access and other kinds. So in many ways, it's a futile thing to do because if somebody really wants to read it, you know, they have other forms yeah. to it. And you're right. I mean, parents do get to make those decisions for their for their own children. What I object to is they're making decisions for other people's children and, you know, who might not agree. But anyway, uh, donuts. Let's go back to donuts. Donuts. Yes. Let's go back to fun stuff, Stop right? Donuts. <laughs> I love it. So whose idea was it to do um, the chapter? Because it is really fun the way that the donuts disappear. And, you know, some, I, I just, I mean, here, if we get to chapter 23, look how pitiful it is. There's only <laughs> I know. Donuts have all been eaten. Yeah. It, it was sort of a joint effort. We, when, um, when we started producing this book, we knew that we wanted to do something more fun. We wanted to give the reader more stuff. And, you know, my daughter, Alex, is an important component in my success and in my business. My daughter and my son, they work with me. Um, and so she's very visual. And so she played a large part in this. Um, but also, you know, I have this fantastic agent, um, Celeste Fine, who has been just worked tirelessly to make help make me even more of a success. And uh, Atria has been wonderful. They're just the nicest people. They work hard, they listen, they wanna do you know something special. So it, you know, it, was, it was kind of a joint effort. And I think donuts you know, were sort of the obvious thing. The hard part now is what do we do with the next book? What are we, what are we gonna do with 31? And, and Recovery Agent, I have the second Recovery Agent book coming out in the spring, The King's Ransom. Right. And I, I thought the recovery agent was really a lot of fun. We did. A, did we do a Zoom event? We did. Didn't we for the recovery agent? I'm pretty sure we did. You were in Hawaii, if I remember. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We did a Zoomer. But um, yeah, I, I really like it. I'm having a lot of fun with it because it's nice to be able to get out of Trenton once in a while. And um, it's a lot of work. It's I. Um, I need to plan better so that I can actually physically get out and go to some of these places. And so far, um, you know, I did the first book and it was pandemic. I had to do everything online. I couldn't, I couldn't get out and about. And then this one sort of came on me kind of fast. So um, I didn't get to go to Egypt and Paris and London and all those places that we're going to see in that book. But the next one, I have I have to plan this better so I get to do a little fun travel. Well, you know, we kind of all got out of the habit of doing travel for a while, and it takes a bit of time to to walk back into it. So over the years, what have been sort of um, touching points, you know, during the book? Donuts, we've mentioned. Um, what else can we talk about? Cars, for example, that they, they've been a constant throughout the series. Yes, I destroy cars. It's, um, I, I did it in the first book because I thought I wanted to make it into a movie and they always like an exploding car. And then, and then I just found out I really liked it. It's just, so, um, I just can't imagine doing a plum book without, you know, wrecking at least three or four cars. It's, I think my fans would be disappointed in me if I didn't destroy cars now. Well, that's it. I mean, I think, you know, you one last time you were here physically, when you and I were talking, you know, we you said something about you always, you know, your fans expect um, an Ivanovich. They have an expectation of what an Ivanovich book will be. Uh, what what is your idea of what that expectation is? Yeah, um, the expectation is that I write the happy book. Um, I write a book about good people who aren't perfect. Um, but they're good people. They try hard. In the end, they succeed. Um, you know that I'm not going to kill any cats or dogs. You know that um, it's going to end well. There might be some scary moments in the middle, but um, in the end, it's it's going to end well. I hope that when my readers read my book, they leave it with a little bit better mood than they started with. That um, it, maybe if I can't make anybody laugh out loud, I can make them smile. You know, they're not going to put my book down and go kick the dog because they're in a, in a bad mood. And I think that's, um, they know that there's going to be a little, um, I hesitate to call it romance, but there will be some sexual attraction going on. There's going to be some big, handsome, scruffy guy 
who maybe plays by his own rules. And um, that's, you know, part of the fantasy of men and women. And, the, you know, those are the things that I think my reader looks for and they want. And I think it's important to meet that expectation. Um, that I think of myself as an entertainer. I'm, I'm not, you know, some um, literary person that's going to get invited, you know, on Oprah's book club. I don't, I don't um, have, I'm not so interested in the content as I am in the character and in the enjoyment for the reader. I think, you know, we all have our job as a writer and some some people are cathartic writers and they produce that experience for the readers and i'm i'm just the entertainment i'm like you know i'm um, i'm basically shallow but i do it so well that it works out basically shallow i'm going to remember that for next time we talk i really love that um so I, one for the money it was such a fabulous title um and it really fit with stephanie as a bail bond person, you know, which came first? Did you come up with the the title and then, you know, kind of tailor Stephanie to fit that idea of carrying that forward? Or did you come up with Stephanie and then look for titles that would enhance the brand? Because that's actually what we're talking about, what you were talking about. Yeah, no, titles have always been horrible. Um, titles always come last with um, requires, you know, like for a while there, we were having contests for the fans. They would submit titles to us because we, we were just dreadful at, at picking out titles. And um, one for the money came after the book was done. And I think probably we, we called it three or four other things before we came up with one for the money. And then um, on the second book, my husband thought of two for the dough and um, three to get deadly. And then we were totally stuck with the number thing, which, um, you know, after 29 books, I said, maybe maybe we could just move away from this once in a while. And uh, so so now we have, you know, some books that uh, are, don't have the numbers in. Although I, I wanted to come back for Dirty 30 because it was such a good title, I just couldn't resist. It is a great title, but going was going Rogue 29 or 28? Uh, I think it was 20. 29. Never mind. I can find the cover here when I'm looking at the book. See, I remember nothing. I, I I go to signings and my my readers know everything about all of the books and, and I know nothing because whatever book I'm writing on, that's what's in my head. I have like this limited capacity. And so I have to dump everything else out so that I can write the new book. And so, and especially if it has anything to do with a number. Um, and after three o'clock in the afternoon, I can't remember anybody's name. So that's, um, you know, that's what I live with. So why, why is she a bounty hunter? I mean, you know, if you're going to have a series lead and you're going to write crime, you have to have some occupation or some, you know, reason for this person to be involved. What interested you about being, you know, a bounty hunter? I saw Midnight Run, the movie with um, De Niro and Charles Grodin. And I was just struck by it because I didn't know anything about um, bail bondsmen or bounty hunters. But what I knew was that there were a lot of, um, there was there were some women writing some really good detective stories. Um, this was right at the beginning where Sarah Pretzky came in and um, Sue Grafton, and they started having the big female protagonist. And I didn't think I could compete with that. Um, I thought Sue Grafton was, you know, God, and, and I was not going to be able to to do another detective. So I was searching around for something in the crime genre because I had sort of gotten kicked out of romance. Um, I had to reinvent myself and I decided, you know, to, to go into the crime genre. And um, this just sort of popped up on the television one night and I thought, wow, you know, and I liked the cachet of it, right? Bounty Hunter, that sounded good to me. I, was sort of like going back to cowboys and all that stuff. Well, it does give her sort of a quasi-legal, you know, but um, but it allows her a lot of freedom that, um, you know, she'd have to follow procedure and other stuff if she were a cop or whatever. So, although, you know, what I'm finding really interesting, Janet, is that the, the private detective today is not really, you know, the gumshoe of your going out and, you know, walking around, it's not Archie Goodwin or whatever it is. And so what we're getting right now are true crime podcasters. Podcasters are becoming kind of the Kinsey Milhone and, 
the I Warshawski and all. Um, and as, as true crime is is working to some degree by crowdsourcing, trying to get you know multiple people to help um, sift through evidence and come up with things. I find it, I really find it interesting. I've always loved the way crime fiction follows along the edge of social change or sometimes actually leads it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, also just, you know, the whole podcasting um, business is, um, I, I'm sort of left behind in all of this, you know, it's like I'm, I'm in a lost generation with all of this stuff, but it's it just opens up all kinds of, things just like streaming you know I mean here we sit look at this um reaching out to a whole lot of people and in our you know in our offices and um I it, you know it's a whole different world I I think it's great I mean I I wish I was I, I wish I could be more a part of it but you know you can't do everything I'm sort of locked in my room um day after day you know writing Stephanie Plum and Gabriella Rose and Every now and then somebody opens the door and throws a bag of Cheetos in at me. <laughs> well, you know what? Your work ethic is remarkable. I mean, you know, 1994, this is 20, not even 2024. And you've written 20, 30 Stephanie Plums along with other books. So, you know, you're not a slacker. You're, you're definitely hard at work. Well, see, it turns out that if you stop giving your publisher books, they stop sending you money. Oh, dear. Is, yes, it's so unfair, isn't it? It's just like, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> right. No, I get it. Totally get it. Um, which is why you're able to lead, you know, move your office and all that good stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, no, publishing is unfair the way they do expect to make money. But so it is. And actually, bookselling, in theory, also has to make money, or at least my staff would like to say that, you know, we should make money. Um, what can I say? Anyway, um, what would you like to say about Dirty 30 in terms of the plot? Because you have a you have a couple of interesting things going on. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I like about it is that there's a lot of Bob the dog. Because Morelli um, goes off. He's, um, he's in Miami on some cop stuff. And he leaves Bob the dog with Stephanie. And so Bob the dog is is there right throughout the whole book. And in fact, Bob the dog ends up being the hero mm -hmm. and saving Stephanie in, in a very scary situation. Um, so I like that part of it. Um, I like um, that Lula is being stalked by Grendel and um, uh, who is a, um, a character out of a, a board game she's playing. Um, she doesn't realize that Grendel is actually from Beowulf, the book, but that doesn't matter. Um, she's being stalked by Grendel. That was fun. I mean, you know, when you write this many books, you have to have fun with it too. Like I write for the reader. I really do because without the reader, I'm nothing. I mean, this is all about entertaining and communicating and um, that's where I get my kick. But you also have to enjoy yourself when you're writing. So I have to... When, when you've done a series this long, it's not that easy keeping it fresh for the reader and it's even harder keeping it fresh for me. So I have to find things you know that I enjoy. Um, in this book, I wanted to have um, Bob the dog. I wanted to have um, you know this Grendel thing chasing after Lula. And I, and I wanted to have a lot of Ranger. So that was why I had to get rid of Joe. Poor Joe, he got <laughs> shoveled off to Miami making late night phone calls to Stephanie um, when she's, you know, in the car with Ranger. So uh, it was, you know, it was a fun part. And then, you know, of course I had the ending, um, which we will not talk about um, to any great extent, but. <laughs> yeah, I can see that you really did have fun with that. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed was uh, Lula's fashion sense, if indeed she even has one. But yeah. you, spend, you spend a fair amount of time describing, you know, Lula's wardrobe um, in its various malfunctions or successes or whatever it is. And I, I keep trying to envision her in my head, you know, from the way you describe her. It's pretty awe-inspiring. Yeah, I, Lula has been a character that has really evolved. She started out as just a walk-on in One for the Money. She was She was one of two hookers in that story. And um, she just stuck with me. When I went to write book number two, I just, I couldn't get Lula out of my head. And so I brought Lula in and I gave her a job at the Bill Bonds office. And again, she was, you know, sort of a walk on there too. 
but every book Lula just sort of, I, I have to worry that Lula doesn't take over the Plum series because mm -hmm. uh, she's fun. She's bigger than life. She's, um, she's a way that I, uh, I bring some humor into it. And, um, and she's really evolved as a character. You know, she, you can't defeat Lula. She's just, she's big and she's bold and she enjoys that. Um, she knows how to use it. She, um, don't call her fat, doesn't like that one bit. But aside from that, um, she likes who she is. She knows who she is. And if, um, if it doesn't work who she is, she reinvents herself. She keeps moving forward. And um, so, and then a couple books ago, I'm not sure, um, I, don't, I don't know if we discussed this, but a couple books ago in the height of wokeness, um, I had a, a new editor who I absolutely adore. He's just fantastic, but it was his first book and he didn't like Lula being a hoe. So, um, so we couldn't call Lula a hoe. So Alex and I sat down and came up with all these other things that we could call her, like an erectile engineer. Um, and then she was um, an organ grinder. And um, we had, we had, and what we realized is that it was so much more fun, you know, not calling her a hoe. But after three books, um, it was decided that she could be a hoe again. And um, <laughs> because readers were writing in and saying, I, I think, I think Janet's got a ghostwriter. I, I can't believe she's writing the books because um, Lula isn't a hoe and She's not eating fried chicken. Um, Lula had to eat at Turkey Club when everybody else ate fried chicken. You know, it was cultural appropriation or something. And um, and then you know, but it just you know, it did, didn't work. Um, this I guess this is why you know I feel so insulted that I haven't been banned because um, <laughs> you know I went. Do <laughs> you know it's an, it's an interesting thought. Um, when I was when I was young when we were both young I'm not sure that you could actually have said that you know in a book um oh. and, and I by now everything else is so outrageous that your books seem really you know almost old-fashioned in that sense whereas they were really sort of cutting edge the other way when you started out yeah I'm not writing 50 shades you know oh. um but when I started out when I was writing romance novels I couldn't cuss like I would have to say oh peas and carrots you know, that kind of thing. And um, you, you couldn't say um, Dick. It was um, his manhood. And I mean, there were, yeah, there were all these things, but what you could say was nipple. That was allowed. Um, and we had lots of, you know, adjectives for that. It, it was strange times, right? It, well, you know, it's almost like the old Hollywood code, you know, and when yeah. uh, the censors would plow through the movie scripts or the whatever it was or the rushes or something and prune out anything that they thought we're having that happen all over again you know there there's a whole thing going on with taking out offensive words out of um some books georgette harris why well, agatha christie has even been subject to that so you know the thing is that what's offensive changes all the time you know it changes culturally it changes whatever and so there's never like any static moment when you know, every, everybody agrees on what's offensive. It just doesn't work that way. No, but I do think it's important that we don't um, take take this out of books in the past because it's part of history. It's right. like, you know, I look at the first Plum book and the clothes that she's wearing, you know, with scrunchy socks and um, uh, biker shorts and, uh, you know, and all of this stuff. And she hasn't got a cell phone. In that first book, I mean, you're she's in trouble, and you're like, why doesn't she just call someone? Because she doesn't have a cell phone. Oh, it's wonderful. I was also thinking how useful Lula is in your mission to destroy automobiles. You know, I mean, she's kind of an essential factor there. So, my late mother's favorite character, unsurprisingly, was Grandma. Um, did you always intend her, or did she another character that walked on and then kind of began to take over? No, grandma was always important. She was, because um, she's a combination of my Aunt Lena and my grandma Fanny. Um, so she was a, a, an important part of my childhood. And she was, um, she was always important. She was as important to me as Stephanie. Um, the mom 
was sort of pushed aside for a while um, because she was so normal. Mm -hmm. You know, um, grandma was not normal. Grandma was, um, had reached an age where she could do whatever she wanted. She could dress as crazy as she wanted. She could have, you know, green hair if she wanted that, you know, and, um, and I, I always thought, and I, and I knew women like that. Um, you, you see them in the supermarket parking lot, you know, um, try, trying to uh, take other people's parking places. And so, <laughs> right. We might be more like that than we both think, actually, yeah. going through that. So is grandma still going strong at book 30? So time is actually just, you know, kind of a thing, right? In the books that we're, we're in a somewhat suspended state of time. Yeah, well, um, time sort of stands still. I mean, um, things move around. So certainly um, a lot of things have changed in 30 years. Um, clothes, technology, cars, all sorts of things. But um, my characters have stayed the same age. Mm -hmm. uh, what's interesting is that I have had to adapt to the times. Ranger, for instance, has had to be modified because in the early books, he was very aggressive. And um, as much as I hated to, you know, sort of um, tone him down a little bit, uh, he, he, that aggression would not work yeah. in today's, in today's book. So while Stephanie and I are not aging, we are changing. I know. Well, I think that's part of that reader's expectation that we talked about. You know, they do not expect to come to the book and expect to find themselves at grandma's funeral or, you know, I mean, so you yeah. do have to, you do have to do that thing where the times, the time moves along as time does, but the characters stay who they are. You yeah. Know. Remember Robert B. Parker was Spencer. Yeah. Okay. I was a huge Spencer fan. Me too. You remember when he got bifocals? I, and I also remember he was a Korean War vet when we started. And at the end, he was, you know, from the yeah. Iraqi war. Yeah, I, I hated when he got bifocals. That was my hero. You know, that wasn't so um, that was a, a real deciding factor in, you know, deciding that I was not going to mention age after the first book. She was 30. That was it. Done. Yeah, well, I, I think um, I think that that's a bargain that readers make with authors and vice versa. I mean, readers come to the book and they're okay uh, with that. And, and you know, I, Michael Connolly and I are going to be together tomorrow night. He's coming to the store as he has for every one of his books. And he made a decision, you know, to age Harry Bosch over mm -hmm. time as we've gone through. And so the reader's expectation for that is different than the expectation, you know, when they expect to find grandma and Stephanie and Ranger and Morelli at all, largely the same age while other stuff around them is moving. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's just sort of personal preference. And, um, but I, I think that if there was a book, I think I, maybe it was, I don't know, three or four books ago where um, every now and then I would slip in that Stephanie kept saying, um, They'd say, how old are you? And she'd say, 57. No, why did I say that? You know, um, and and nobody picked it up that she was actually 57, you know, if, if I had been aging her. I, I didn't oh. get any, any mail on it at all. Um, I love that. Yeah, because that's true. Book 27, she would have been 57, according to, yeah. Yeah, and, and so- I didn't notice it either, I have to tell you. That's embarrassing. Yeah, well, I can't remember what book it was. It was several books ago, and um, different things would would happen to her, and she would say, um, "Oh no, you know, well, I'm going to my fifteenth uh, reunion in high school." No, wait a minute. No, it's the, you know, it was all stuff like that, and then, but no, nobody said anything about it. So you know, I, I I've always thought that that. Murder mystery today is too focused on it being murder mystery. There has to be a dead body. But in truth, if you go back to the golden age and so forth, there were all kinds of crimes that made a murder mystery. You know, it could be it could be a theft, it could be um, a kidnap, it could be all kinds of things. So if you're writing comedic mystery, do you always have to have a body or can you write a whole book around, let's say, a diamond heist? I, th I think you could. 
Um, I usually have a couple dead bodies because um, it was advice I received from one of my past agents. And he said, if things get dull, just kill somebody. And uh, so, um, so when I have a sagging middle, um, usually at page 100 and then around page 200 again, um, you really need to raise the stakes for the reader, especially if you write humor, because it's very easy to just sort of get into this, you know, ha, 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 and not be really concerned about what's happening to your character. So um, in order to balance out that lightheartedness, the humor, um, I decided that I needed to raise the stakes periodically. And, you know, the easiest way to do that, of course, is to have a dead body. So, um, so, so I almost always have bodies. But you don't actually execute them um, in front of us, do you, very often? No, that's um, that's another thing of you know the promise to the reader is that there's not going to be graphic violence on stage. It can happen off stage, but it's not going to be on stage. Right. So the bodies appear, but we're not actually participating in how they turned into bodies. Yeah, it's kind of the sort of the pro row thing. I'm, I'm hooked on pro row on Britbox. Are you watching pro row? Um, you know, not. By accident, the other night, and I, I think we might have been looking to see if there was a new episode of Vera, but we stumbled into, and there was the very first David Suchet Poirot, which is, I don't remember the exact title, and I think it's from a short story, but anyway, it begins with a woman who comes to want Poirot to find her missing cook, and, um, and you know, it, it goes from there, and it, it's unbelievable how how well David Suchet inhabited that character, all and those little fussy mannerisms and all. Yeah. And I don't know if I've ever told you this, but in 1990, so I was just like a totally novice bookseller. Rob and I went to Agatha Christie's Centenary in Torquay in England. And among other delights, they brought down a special Orient Express train from London to wow. Torquay, which it doesn't normally do. And David Suchet ran was in one car and Joan Hickson, who at that time was the Miss Marple on television, rode in another car. When they got out, all the crime writers are, you know, in the little station on the platform and all. And when the train stopped and the doors opened, David Suchet got out, Miss Joan Hickson got out. And David had this beautiful um, bouquet, sort of like a nosegay of flowers. And he walked over to Joan Hickson and he handed her the flowers, bowed over her hand and said, at last we meet. I think it was just so wonderful. But at the banquet that night, I actually got to dance with him. Oh, right. I know. And we're almost the same size, you know. I mean, so, yes. yes. Anyway, it was it was wonderful. And I I just can't quite find Kenneth Branagh to be as Poirot as Poirot. No, no, it has to be David Suchet. And Hastings. I love Hastings. He was wonderful. No, I agree. I like that. And I thought, I mean, there have been a number of Miss Marples and Margaret Rutherford was terrific, although nothing at all like Miss Marple. But Joan Hickson really was, I thought, absolutely, you know, Miss Marple. It's great yeah. how sometimes, you know, the, the casting really synthesizes with the character. It doesn't always happen, but... Yeah, you know, I think in both both of those, the Christie estate has been very well served by David Suchet and, and Joan Hickson. Yeah, I read an article on him and they asked him, how did you get that walk? That, that you know, that little walk that he does? Penguin and, walk, yep. Yes, and he said, I squeeze my butt cheeks together very tightly. <laughs> wow, I love that. That's wonderful. So speaking of movies, there was a movie for One for the Money. Yeah. Um, have you got any any sort of movie or TV interest going for either um, Stephanie or for the recovery series? Yeah, we do. Um, you know, I'm always, I, I've had many starts on the West Coast and none of them have turned out. They've all been fun, you know, to be involved in. I wasn't involved in one for the money at all. Nobody would even talk to me. Um, so, but since then I have, and, you know, we've just never had the success of, you know, finally getting it to the screen, but there's a lot of interest in the recovery agent. I just signed um, a deal with Skydance, um, which, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that it's not been announced. Don't anybody say anything out there. 
it's it's our secret. You can't you can't say anything. Shh. Right. Yeah. Well, but I, yeah, I can sort of you know, thirty books is pretty daunting for somebody to take on, but I can see the recovery agent has a lot of elements that would really appeal to people you know that are doing visual storytelling is after all you know demands things that i mean a screenplay is only 100 pages and it's all dialogue whatever it is with various sorts of directions um and i'm not it, it's hard to translate some books and did you watch the first adaptation of louise penny's series no it was it was, it was it just was not successful television. It was almost impossible. She says so herself. So I'm not, you know, I'm not in any way insulting Louise because um, I'm very fond of her books, but it was almost impossible to take that quirkiness and, you know, eccentricities and stuff of, of Three Pines and translate it to all of the characters in the place and, and make it work. Um, yeah. And I, I think the recovery agent, you know, is one of those things that really can become excellent television you know lots of action high stakes you know the whole bit i could see it as a movie easier than television Can you? but um so it's going to be interesting to see you know if it really i mean the thing is you know you make these deals and then they they go into committee and they go to writers and then they go i you know and by the time um you know two three years has passed and and then you know then it just never seems to get to the screen so um so i'm always you know just very cautious about it i mean i enjoy it in the beginning and you know i hope somebody's going to take me out to dinner you know for it and um but you know until it actually gets there and it's in um, the seventh year and going into reruns then you know i'm i'm very cynical about the whole process a lot of it's luck a lot of it's timing and yeah. you know the, you, who could anticipate like the writer's strike for example or the actor's strike you know which threw a cannonball into all kinds of projects yeah yeah i i was always surprised that plum didn't go to television because i thought that that was such a good television project but uh, you know it just kind of got bogged down and um you know that's the way it is with the west coast it's um, there's so many people involved in any one project. It's sort of amazing that anything gets made. Wasn't but, it great to be a novelist and be, you know, in charge of your own world and, you know, yeah, it works yeah. the way you design it. You don't have to take it to committee or have somebody, you know, edit it or whatever it is. Yeah, well, you you do have editors, you know, and um, as as you progress you get a little bit more power over the editors but when i was when i was writing romance um you know i mean i had a different editor for every book there were some books that i had two and three editors for just for this one little tiny book and they you know they all had their own ideas and you know their own agenda and you know so my my attitude was you don't have to take all of their suggestions but if it's a difference between vanilla ice cream and chocolate ice cream give it to them. And, um, and aside from that, uh, my daughter just got a, a contract um, to write children's books. And so yeah, her first book comes out uh, in the fall um, next year. And so, um, so we've been going through it with her editorial suggestions. And I said, um, I said to her, well, you know, if they really are sticklers about um, something that you feel is important in this first go around, just let them go. And then when you get first pass, they'll have forgotten about it and you can change it. Wow. There's a technique. I really yeah. like them. Yeah. yeah. Very sneaky. Very sneaky. I'm, I'm in favor of sneaky. I'm okay with that. Well, I am too. Well, I didn't, I didn't mean when I said edit that, um, that books don't have editors. I was more thinking, along the lines of you know the cutting room floor where whole yeah. things can disappear and the and you really lose control yeah yes. exactly Absolutely. you know it's not collaborative in the same way that you know working on i mean i've always thought you know because i've edited you know hundreds of books myself when we had our publishing company that the object you know was a dialogue in which you hope that the book if the book needed to you know i i, I think what it came down to was I would often say to an author, what did you mean by this? And then the author would tell me. And then I would say, but why isn't it, you know, here on the page? 
yeah. it doesn't help if it's if it's in your head. Um, and so the object was to just make the communication better so much more so than, you know, to actually steer the book. But, you know, who knows? Every editor has their own style and is an important part of. And you also want your editor to love your book so they can sell it to the sales department and, you know, all the rest of it. Yeah, well, I have to say that since I've been with Plum, I mean, I have just had fantastic editors. You know, when I was at St. Martin's, I had Jen Enderlin, who, you know, I dearly love. We're still friends. And um, I and I have um, Peter Borland now and Adria, who's just fantastic. Um, so so as I've been fortunate that and they they make my books better. They really do. They they have. And it's there's a good chance. But Suzanne actually published one for the money. And she was at Scribner, but I'm trying to remember, was that before Scribner was acquired by Simon & Schuster? After yeah. Robert McMillan fell overboard or whatever happened to Robert McMillan that we'll never know for sure? Yeah, my, fir my, my first year with Scribner, Scribner was just Scribner. Yeah, well, I think it was. But I mean, in a way, you sort of come full circle back in the sense yeah. that Scribner is part of Simon & Schuster now. Yeah, I'm back home. Yeah, no, I think it's great all the way around. Patrick, why don't you come and join us and see if there are any questions from the audience or comments that you would like to make? Because Patrick's been around. Um, actually, Patrick came to the store, I think, the year that we did Left Coast Crime and the um, Dulles Award went to one for the money. So he was right there. Yeah, 95. Mm -hmm. Let's see here. Um, yeah, there are quite a few questions here. Okay. Well, Robin says, uh, one thing I love about your books is that they still attract new uh, young readers. Um, earlier this week, a young woman mentioned your books and asked if she should start from the beginning. Absolutely. Let's see. That wasn't a question. That was a That statement. was a comment. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, but see, I don't, I don't think you have to start from the beginning. I mean, that's, you know, again, personal choice. Some people like to do that, but um, I write um, each book is complete in itself. So you really can pick it up at any time and, and read any one of the books and read it just as a standalone if you want. Um, it's like watching Poirot, right? You can, I, I know that first episode that you're talking about. And um, I, I think I had been, watching him for like three weeks before I saw that first episode it was in the third season <laughs> so how do you how do you balance uh you know putting in just enough to orient uh, a, a brand new reader without kind of boring the people that have been with you from the very beginning is there a certain amount of backstory that you have to put in each book yeah and that's always really difficult um and I'm always aware of that trying to insert um, all of the information that I need to, um, knowing that there's a new reader in there, uh, you know, readers that have been with me for a long time. Um, you also have to be very careful not to load it up all in the front or else it becomes very boring because all you have is narrative. So um, yeah, it's one of those things that requires, you know, a couple glasses of wine. Um, let's see. Gina says, Grandma Mazur got a puppy, but we haven't heard about him anymore. Will he be back? Yeah, yeah. The, the puppy um, had to find a different forever, forever home. It um, just didn't didn't work out with the plums. But we found a good home for him somewhere. Let's see here. Okay. Lots of people just saying how much they love your books. I'm trying to find some actual questions here. Oh yeah, um, what happened to Stephanie's sister and her family? Asks Debbie. Yeah, that's another thing that um, is always in the back of my mind and I can never sort of get to. One of the reasons is that like, I forgot how many kids she has. Um, and so I'd have to go back and do some research on it. There, I, you know, there are all these characters in my past, like Mooner. Uh, I get a lot of, you know, you know, what happened to Mooner, you know, and what happened to Stephanie's sister. And it's just a matter of not being able to squeeze everything into um, all these books. It's, um, I get asked a lot of questions about the Wicked series. Are we going to have more Wicked books? And again, it's just, you know, it's some um, time management. 
I, I, uh, I just can't, you know, I can't write books fast enough. So um, someday I think, you know, Stephanie's sister Valerie will be back and, but, but then her, her kids, well, we, well, we can't age them, can we? They, they can't be teenagers by then. They'll be married by the time I. <laughs> I'm surprised nobody's asked about Diesel. When you and I have been in the past, that it always comes up. What, what's, where's Diesel? Yeah, Diesel, Diesel is like my favorite guy of, of the characters that I've created. And in fact, I've sort of shoved Diesel into the Recovery Agent series. Um, Rafer is very Diesel-like. He um, looks a little bit like Diesel. He has a lot of Diesel characteristics. He's just this sort of scruffy, big, you know, handsome guy that's, uh, um, you know, barges his way through life and, you know, just drops his clothes on the floor and gets into bed naked. Do you enjoy the process of collaboration? Because I know you've done some books with Lee Goldberg, for instance, and maybe somebody else. Do you enjoy that process? I do. Um, and to a large extent, because everybody that I've, um, mo almost everybody that I've collaborated with uh, have been friends. Um, Lee Goldberg and Fief Sutton, <clears throat> I knew from years ago, um, uh, starting at the very beginning of the Plum series. And um, after, you know, every now and then we would run into each other when I was on the West Coast and um, one day, you know, I, I was talking to Lee and he said, wouldn't it be fun to write a book together? And I said, okay. And so we did. But, um, you know, both of those guys are television guys. Um, they are showrunners. And, um, you know, Fief Sutton has like three Emmys for Cheers. So so we wrote a couple books and then, um, you know, we all sort of got over that. We had, We had fun. And they went on to, um, you know, other lives in television again. So, um, so those series sort of ended, but, um, you know, it's, but that's one of the fun things too, is having these little short excursions, you know, the mini series that I can get out of the world of Plum and just do something different. And then it's always fun to get back to Plum again. Um, I that, you know, cleansing your palate is, so to speak, would be a yeah. very refreshing thing to do. So it would give you more energy and more um, enthusiasm about coming back to Stephanie. Yeah, and I also find that when I'm in some other heroine's head um, and I come back to Stephanie, um, there's always a, a Stephanie growth involved. Uh, I don't know what it is, but the the people, the other people that I, um, the other protagonists that I have are always very different from Stephanie. So when I finish that book and I go back into writing Stephanie, um, there there are just little nuances in Stephanie that I that I see that I hadn't thought of before that um, maybe I borrow from the other characters or something I don't know but I always I feel like Stephanie always becomes a little bit more interesting after I've had this palate cleansing excursion. That's bad. You know I can I can certainly understand how that would how that would work. I'm not sure anybody's ever said that to me before, but I really, I really like the fact that it would, it would um, give you a little more material, a little bit different perspective, whatever it is um, on who she is. Well, you know, it's like when we go out and we make a new friend and we get to know this person and we get to know, you know, their characteristics and what they're good at and, and things we don't like about them. And then we go back, you know, and in our quiet moments, we sort of sit and reflect and maybe learn a little bit more something about ourselves because of yeah. our association that's, with them. That's a very keen insight, Janet. Indeed. I agree with you. Yeah. Anything so, else? Um, let's see. Kim, Kim on YouTube says, I love her book on writing. Does she ever think about writing another? Hmm. Um, no, but I probably should go back and edit it. I, I'm not sure it's even in print anymore. I mean, that um, I never I never see it around. But that was uh, seemed like a good idea. It was actually a really hard book to write. And um, uh, I did it with um, with Alex and with a really good friend of mine. And so um, combining it all was it took a surprising amount of time. It was like, you know, I did a, a graphic novel with Alex 
um, because I'm a big graphic novel person. I read comic books and and that was another thing that we would love to do again. It was like probably the favorite book that I've that I've done just flat out. So, so work intensive, lots of people involved, inkers and artists and colorists and, um, and, you know, so um, writing, writing the nonfiction is a whole other talent, it turns out um, that I'm, I'm not sure that's where, you know, my, um, where my talent lies. It was, it was a chore. It was <laughs> probably hard, hard, I would imagine, to kind of articulate what your creative process is you know you you just you know it and you do it but putting it on words is probably challenging well we thought it was going to be easy because we had originally on the website we had sections of people writing in and asking me questions about writing and i would give them answers and so i we had this big backlog of questions and answers on writing and the idea was that we were going to take this and we were just going to make it into a book but you know, we just isn't that simple. Um, it's it's just a skill set of organization that um, my mind wasn't wasn't really up to. I think it turned out okay, and I'm glad somebody uh, you know is reading it and getting something out of it and enjoying it. So um, that makes me feel good. Maybe as a final question, Gina asks, do you have trouble coming up with new ideas for what will happen to Stephanie? Um, no, I have lots of ideas. Uh, the ideas are easy. It's the writing that's hard. Um, although um, the way I ended this book um, <laughs> has has um, has given me pause, I have to admit. I have a lot of ideas. I don't know which one is the right one. So um, I'm working it out. Never fear, never fear. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. But writing is hard. Ideas are easy. I think that's interesting. I wonder if your subconscious set you up, you know, with this ending. So it would push you in a in a direction maybe that will surprise you. Well, I, I was I was going through the whole book and having a great time with Stephanie and Ranger. And I got to the end and I knew what the end, you know, what was going to happen between the two of them at the end. And and it did. And the, and I loved and I loved that part of it and I loved the way that it worked out that I that I wrote it I and then it got to the very end and um, I got this idea like oh my god you know Joe's coming back from Miami and so um, so I just went with it and you know and enjoyed that part of it too and then you know a couple of weeks later I was like damn now what <laughs> now what that's going to be the question for the next book so stay tuned everybody there's an extra mystery in right dirty that's fiction. actually that's actually not a bad book title barbara now what oh yeah well that's good you could right now what? <laughs> that could be 31 31 is now what I said you were getting away from, you know, just the numbers. So um, I like that. Do you remember those little short things that you wrote called By the Numbers? I always thought that was a really clever little series title, you know, for, for those little guys. Yeah, and they were all... Between holiday. the numbers. I'm sorry, I had it wrong. It was Between it, the Numbers. Between the Numbers, because it was Between the Plum Books. Yeah. Um, and that was the first time we saw Diesel. That's right. He was in four of them, I think, isn't it? Um, I think there were three. There was Christmas, Valentine's Day, and St. Patrick's Day. Okay. I thought there were four, but well, whatever. Anyway. It might have been. What do I know? Tell us. Okay. If, uh, you know, all you people out there, it's your responsibility to let us know if there were four books. Right. Um, but like, I would love to see them repackaged, you know, like come out like a little box set for Christmas or something. I think that would be fun. They were, they were, they were fun books and they were, they were small that one of them was a size book, but two of them were, um, were small. So that's not a bad idea. Yeah. Just have a, as you say, a little box set between the numbers. That's a winner all the way around. Love yeah. it. Well, if you're paying attention there, Atrie Books, you now have an idea for, <laughs> for a Christmas thing. In any case, congratulations, Janet. Number one again, not your first number one, but really nice for this book, isn't it? Because this is a landmark book all the way to 30. 
Number one is always exciting. You never take it for granted. You know, it's, um, I'm very grateful. I've been very lucky. Well, and we are very lucky that we still have some autographed copies fresh from Janet's. Well, actually, they've been here for a couple of weeks, but anyway, from Janet's actual hand at the Poison Pens. So if you haven't yet gotten your copy, you should come and order one from us. We'd love to have you do that. Let me wish everybody a happy Halloween since we're getting closer to it and um, holiday season. And thank you very much for joining us tonight, Janet. It was lovely to see you again. It always is. So I'll look forward to 31. Absolutely. 31. Good night. Good night, night, everyone. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.